And today we're talking about the reality of community. The reality of community, or more specifically in our context, home groups. That season is upon us once again when we're getting ready to start home groups. And they're so incredibly important for this church that I want to cast some vision today. I want to talk about home groups a little bit, why they're so important, and cast some vision in hopes that we would all get on board with this thing and that it would be profitable for the kingdom of God and the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen? Acts chapter 2, let's pray before we get to it. Lord, we thank you for loving us. It's so kind of you. Who are we that you would even be mindful of us? And yet the Bible expresses that you're madly and wonderfully in love with us. And Lord, we realize and we remind ourselves that that is not really a reflection of who we are. It's a reflection of who you are. That you could love people like us. It's amazing, God. And that you invite us into your heart. That you invite us into the fellowship of the Trinity to commune with you, God, to know you, to walk with you, and to be in relationship with one another, bound together in the spirit of Christ. Thank you for these wonderful things that are afforded us in Christianity. We ask that this morning, Lord, you would author this message, that it would be true to your word, that it would be expedient uh, for causing our hearts to glorify you more, that it would be fruitful for the building up of the church. And that you would quicken us in our spirits, Lord. You'd cause us to be alive to the things that are important to you concerning the church. And so we thank you for the reality of community as you've designed it. We thank you for home groups as we see them in scripture and throughout history. And we ask that you would enliven our hearts to these things and that you would please help me to communicate your truth. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The reality of community. Home groups. Now, It's our vision at Reality Carpinteria that everybody who calls reality home would be in a home group. That is our vision. That's our prayer. That's our hope, our desire, our pursuit. That everybody that calls this church home would be in a home group. The reason being that home groups are incredibly important to our life together at Reality. Home groups are one of our core values as a church. And one of our key strategies in ministry for the building up of the church to the glory of Jesus Christ. And what we realize when we think about community and home groups is that when people are able to cultivate meaningful Christian relationships and to give and receive love and care in community, then they have, we have, the best chance of growing in maturity and fruitfulness in Jesus Christ. Now, that is a testimony of my wife and I. When we first started walking with the Lord, um, kind of in our early 20s, I was coaching a surf team, Channel Island Surfboards. I was coaching the amateur team, and I was surfing in surf contests myself. And those were weekend affairs. And so I wasn't really able to attend church. Very rarely did I ever attend church, but uh, someone had invited me to a home group right here in Carpinteria. This is going back, gosh, I don't know, like 15 years ago or maybe more. 
uh, a long time. Gee, I'm getting old. Yeah, 15 or 16 years ago. And in fact, the people that hosted that home group, Fritz and Penny Velasquez, are, are members of this church now here. And they were having this little home group for um, young people just in high school, just out of high school. And somebody invited me. And, you know, I had grown up in a Christian home and I knew the Lord. And I had gotten on my knees when I was five years old. I can still remember it. And asked Jesus to be my Lord and Savior in my bedroom. My parents had witnessed to me. They had taken me to church. I understood who Jesus was. I understood I was a sinner who was lost apart from him. I understood he was the Savior of the world. And I asked him to save me that day when I was about five years old on my knees in my bedroom on Calle Raymar here in Carpinteria, California. But then in junior high and high school, I walked way away from the Lord, very far from the Lord. Uh, got involved in all sorts of stuff, sort of the normal story, drugs and alcohol, started selling drugs, got arrested for drugs and all these different things. After high school, began to come back to the Lord. It was a slow process. But what was pivotal in that process, really what made all the difference in the world was a home group, was gathering weekly in a home and talking about Jesus and praying for one another and someone to hold me accountable for the way I was living in light of what scripture said. So Kate and I started going to that thing together and we started getting on fire and we were just dating at the time and we gave up one by one slowly sexual immorality and we gave up drugs and we gave up alcohol and all these things that we were into as we were growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ through a home group. And then as we were getting more and more on fire for the Lord, I still have my job as a surf coach, so I couldn't go to church on Sundays. So we just capitalized on the home group venue. And several nights a week, we were in a home group. We'd get together with a bunch of people, and we'd study the scriptures together, and we'd talk about it, and we'd come to an understanding, and then we would pray about it and seek to apply it to our lives. And we would love one another, care for one another, hold each other accountable. And my Christian testimony is that home groups made all the difference in the world for my life. Had Kate and I not been in a home group, I don't know where we would be today. God used it radically for us. Now, when we're thinking about home groups as a church, we want to realize these three things. Number one, there is a biblical basis for home groups. Number two, there is a practical need for home groups in the church. And then number three, there is an effective ministry in home groups. So a biblical basis, a practical need, and an effective ministry. Let's look first at the biblical basis for home groups. One of the things that we want to think about when we think about home groups is the concept of Christian fellowship. Christian fellowship. The word is brought up here in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, a description of the early church. It says about the early church in Acts 2.42, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So we see that the early church was devoting themselves consistently to these things. The apostles' teaching, that is doctrine in the word of God, to fellowship, we'll describe that in a moment, to the breaking of bread, which might mean simply having meals together, or it could also be a reference to the Lord's Supper as they celebrated that, and to prayer. The early church was committed to these things. 
Now, in the church here, we're committed to the same things. We're committed to prayer. Pastor G just talked about in announcements, all the different opportunities that there are for prayer meetings throughout the week. And he gave you an, an exhortation to be involved in praying with the church as the early church was. Communion, we celebrate together every single Sunday. The elements are available up here. We get together and eat as often as we can together. The apostles' teaching doctrine in the word of God were radically committed to the word of God and to teaching and to preaching and defending it. And we must also be committed to fellowship. Now that word fellowship in the Greek is a very familiar word. You all know this Greek word, koinonia. Koinonia, we're all very familiar with that. And a basic definition is the act of partaking, sharing, or participating the act of partaking with one another, sharing with one another, participating with one another, or it could be translated communion. Communion being explained as the sharing or exchanging of intimate thoughts or feelings. Okay, so koinonia, translated fellowship here, is this word of intimate relationship, a sharing of each other's lives. Um, a Analogous word in our language is community, sort of a a buzzword in today's church culture, but a very important word, community, defined basically as a feeling of fellowship with others as a result of sharing common attitudes, interests, and goals. Now, if anybody should ever be sharing common attitudes, interests, and goals, it's Christians. And it's the Christian community. I mean, our interest is the greatest interest in the whole world, the person of Jesus Christ. And our goals are the greatest goals in the whole world, very simply, to glorify Jesus Christ. And we have that goal, that interest, and that attitude in common. The New Testament idea of koinonia is stronger, though, than just the buzzword community. In the New Testament, it really implies an intensely close relationship with one another beyond mere human camaraderie. So it's beyond the idea of community, say, you know, we all live on the coastland, so we have community. It's beyond the sense of that. It's intense. It's close relationship. It's intimate. It's bonding in the person of Jesus Christ. And what we must realize about Christian fellowship and Christian community is that it is based on the nature of God. Can't miss this. Got to get this. Christian community or fellowship, koinonia, is based on the very nature of God. You see, our God is a triune God. When we talk about God, we talk about the Trinity, By the way, this is unique to Christianity. No other religion has this doctrine. That God is the three in one. The three in one. Three persons, one essence. Three who's, one what. They're separate and they're distinct and yet they are absolutely one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so God has always been. What does it mean to be God? It means to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Anything less is not God. We have a triune God. When we talk about Christian theology, it is Trinitarian theology. Theology that has to do with God as a triune being, the three in one. Now, 
What it means that God is a trinity is that he is a community. God has always been in fellowship as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There has never been a time when God has not been in community. And we see that inter-Trinitarian communication throughout the Gospels when Jesus is speaking to the Father and speaking of the Spirit and so on and so forth. So God himself is community. And the Trinity is the basis for Christian community or fellowship. Because God is a fellowship or a community, we, having been created in his image, are made to have fulfillment in fellowship and community. Fellowship and community with him and with one another. Don't miss this. Because God is a community, we who are created in his image are created to discover fulfillment in community with him and with one another. Jesus spoke of this reality in his high priestly prayer in John 17. In verse 21, he's praying for us and he says, Father, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Notice he prays that we would be one in the same way that him and the Father are one, and that we would also be one in him. So in Christianity, what we are invited into is what has historically at times been called the divine dance, the relationship of God with God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Co-existing, co-eternal, co-equal God. And God is in relationship and we have been made in his image and invited into that relationship through Jesus Christ to interact with God in the community that he is and with one another in the community modeled after him. This is incredibly important for Christianity. You must realize that Christianity was designed by God to be corporate and communal. Corporate and communal. That is, Christianity is designed to be lived out together. A lone ranger Christian, so to speak, is destined for failure. You know those Christians. They say, I love the Lord, but I don't love the church. I love Jesus, but I can't stand his people. And I have my own church and my own way of doing it. And what they are, they effectively cut themselves off from the rest of the body. They are lone ranger Christians. Now, any lone ranger Christian is destined for failure in their walk with the Lord. Why is that? Because they are going against God's design for Christianity. And anytime you go against God's design, bad. Go with God's design, good. God's design for Christianity is that it would be lived out in communion and in community with him and with one another. And the Trinity then for us becomes the basis not only for all Christian community and fellowship, but for all Christian love and self-sacrifice. Christianity is all about love and self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice. Jesus gave himself for us. He died for us so we might live. Love, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 
The greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it, that you shall love your neighbor even as yourself. And when Jesus invited us into this community, he said, what you need to do is pick up your cross, which means die, deny yourself, and follow me. Christianity is all about love and self-sacrifice. And Christian love and self-sacrifice is also based on the Trinity. You see, in the Trinity, the Father gives his Son for the world. John 3.16. The Father gives. In the Trinity, we see in the Gospels that the Son did not seek to do his own will, but the will of the Father. John chapter 6, verse 38. And then we see that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, seeks to glorify both the Son and the Father. John 16, verses 14 and 15. So we see this relationship of love and giving. The Father gives. The Son serves. The Spirit glorifies. And that self-sacrificial, surrendered, loving relationship that we're to have is based upon the relationship of God as being triune. So the Christian community is based on the Trinitarian community. Giving for others' sakes, not seeking our own, considering others as more important, and practicing mutual love and submission. Ephesians 5.21 is explicit that we're to be submitted to one another in brotherly love. Mutual love and submission. This is modeled again on the Trinity. Jesus, though he was equal with the Father, submitted to the Father to accomplish the salvation of humanity. So the question for us then becomes, how can we achieve, how can we pursue, how can we experience this sort of Trinitarian community? And the biblical answer is, in the home. In the home. Let's continue reading from where we were in Acts 2, verse 42. We'll read it again. Acts 2, 42, speaking of the early church. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions, and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. Now look in verse 46. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple... And breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Here we have an awesome description of the heart and the attitude and the pursuits of the early church. What I want to draw your attention to is verse 46 which says explicitly that they met both in the temple and they met in homes. That is to say that the early church had both the large group gathering and the small group gathering together in the temple, a place big enough for them to get together, and later on in the homes, a place intimate enough for them to be together in smaller groups. And we see this throughout the early church, the large gathering and the small gathering in the home. Look at Acts chapter 5, 
verse 46, same thing. Acts 5, 46. Uh, 42, excuse me. A little typo there. Acts 5, 42 says, And every day in the temple... And from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So this thing that they were committed to from Acts 2.42, the doctrine of the apostles, the apostolic teaching, the word of God, the truth about Jesus Christ, was expressed in a large group and later on also in small groups. There were both in the early church. We even see as the church moves out of Jerusalem, out of Israel and into Asia. Let's go now to Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, we have Paul addressing the elders of the church in Ephesus as it's going to be the last time he sees them. This is about 20 years later than what we just read in Acts 2 and Acts 5 and 600 miles away. And yet we see the same model is in place. Acts chapter 20, verse 20. Paul says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. So we see that when the church expanded, when it went outside of Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, when it started going to the outermost parts of the earth, that that model was maintained that the teaching was public and in large groups and it was intimate in house to house. The testimony of the book of Acts is that the star of the church saw both venues as necessary and profitable, the large gathering and the small gathering. Therefore, as the church and as a local church called Reality Carpinteria, we want to be diligent with both venues. We want to be diligent to pursue the large meeting because it's biblical and the small meeting in the home because it is also biblical. Now, there were ebbs and flows and changes throughout history according to the politics of the land. There were times of great persecution where the church had to go underground and they could only meet in homes. But when persecution broke, for example, in the Roman Empire and Constantine became a Christian, what did they do? They started building buildings that they might come out of the homes and get together. Why? Because Christians love each other. Why? Because we have a common vision, attitude, and goal, the glory of the person of Jesus Christ. And so we want to be together en masse, not for an event, but for the glory of Jesus Christ, for fellowship, for the breaking of bread, for prayer, and for doctrinal instruction. And so the basic model for the church is that we need to give attention to the large group and to the small. And any ecclesiology, ecclesi who what (laughs) Ecclesiology, let me define the term. I've said it before, but people have asked recently, ecclesiology is theology as applied to the nature and structure of the Christian church. Said very simply, anything that we draw from the Bible about how we ought to do church, okay? Now let me say this statement. 
any ecclesiology that exalts one meeting to the exclusion of the other is in error, is wrong. There are some people who say the church shouldn't meet like this. The church should only meet in homes. That's ridiculous. We don't see that in scripture and we don't see that in history unless they were under severe persecution. Church always came together when they could. There are others who say, forget about the small group. Let's just do the big thing. That's also an error. The early church had both in Jerusalem and 600 miles away in Ephesus, right at the birth of the church and decades later. The church was practicing both and it's our intention to pursue and to practice both to try to be a biblical church. So there is a biblical basis for home groups. Number one, the Trinity. Number two, the model of the early church, meeting in the home. Now, the second point is that there is a practical need for home groups. You'll understand this very well. There is a practical need for home groups. What we have at a church like this is the problem of size. The problem of size. Multiple services with several hundred of us in each service. And what happens at size? Well, at size, you have cracks and back doors. When it's this big, it's really easy to fall through the cracks. And we see it happen all the time. When a church is this large, it's really easy to slip out the back door. And the strategy with home groups and with saying to you that we want everyone that calls this church home to be in a home group, the strategy is to close the cracks and shut the back doors. Then nobody gets left behind. Then nobody that needs love is left unloved that nobody that needs care is left uncared for, that nobody that has things to give and to offer has no place to give and to offer them. And so the home groups, they close the cracks, they shut the back door so people don't fall through them, okay? Now we'll deal with the people that want to fall through them in a moment. (laughs) But we have the problem of size. And so home groups is a strategic ministerial effort to deal with that. What we do in home groups is we take the large and we break it down into the small. You take a big local church and you make it small so that relationships are more manageable and more fruitful and more intimate because Christian koinonia is to be intimate. And it's hard to be intimate on a Sunday morning when I'm jabber-jawing the whole time with several hundred people in the room. It's good, it's right, it's necessary. But there must be more. Listen to me. There must be more to have the full biblical Christian experience. It cannot just be Sunday mornings. It absolutely cannot just be Sunday mornings. If all you have of koinonia is the 30-second meet and greet time after the first set of worship and before announcements, you are getting royally gypped. If that's all you have of getting to know one another, you're missing out and you're shirking your Christian responsibility to pursue community. It's difficult to meet people in a group this size. I hear it all the time. People come to the church, I'm having the hardest time meeting someone. Now, that's not necessarily a deficiency in the church. That's simply group dynamics. There may be a deficiency. I'm not saying we're a perfect church by any means. 
But that's just group dynamics. When you get in a group of several hundred people, it's hard to meet people. Everybody has their little group that they already know. You might call them cliques. Cliques are not necessarily evil. They're just kind of normal. It just happens. We're to be open. We're to invite other people into our groups. We're to share the groups. We're to expand and go into new groups. But it's normal that people know certain people and they don't know other people. Get over it. People always come into the church, just clicks. Well, of course there is, bozo. You're in one too. It might not be here. But why don't you go up to somebody and say, hey, I want to know you and your friends. Well, it's scary. I know it is. That's why we do home groups. It's less scary. There's not hundreds of people there. There's just a few. And you get together and you can develop your own little click and then people could go, blah, 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 to you. <laughs> So there's a practical need for home groups because of the problem of size. And what the problem of size lends itself to for some people is the tendency to hide. There is among some Christians a tendency and the desire to hide. The Bible says you're not allowed. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 24 and 25, but we'll read 23 for a little context. Hebrews 10, 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Then it says, And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So this verse tells us a few things that are very important. In a broad scope, it says you're not allowed to hide. You're not allowed to slip out the back door. You're not allowed to try to disappear. You're not allowed to try to slip through the cracks. What this verse tells us first is that we are to consider one another in verse 24. That word consider is strong in the Greek. It means to perceive or discern distinctly or clearly. To think about distinctly, clearly, purposefully, to understand to put our full attention on. In other words, as the church and individual members of it, we're to be very, very purposeful in considering one another. This is basic Christianity. Very purposeful and careful and clear and distinct in thinking about considering one another. Now we're to do this for a purpose. The purpose says, in order to stimulate one another toward love and good deeds. I prefer the word in the NIV and the New King James, which is spur. Spur one another on toward love and good deeds. The Old King James uses a good word as well. Provoke one another 
toward love and good deeds. In the Greek, it's a very strong word. It means to incite. It's a violent and powerful word. It means to incite, to provoke, to spur. What does it mean to spur? Where's my cowboy couple from San Ynez? They're usually in first service. Come in a second service. Okay, well, what does it mean to spur? I got spurs that jingle, jangle, jingle, right? Cowboys wear spurs and they're little spiky metal things on the back of their boots. And what do they do? They kick the horse in the ribs to make him go, to make the horse go in a certain direction. It's the same idea. It's a strong word. It's somewhat of a violent word but for a good purpose. We're to spur one another on, give each other a little kick in the butt now and again, to provoke each other, to get in each other's face and push each other. What? What are you doing? We're to do this and we're to be thoughtful about it. We're to consider one another. We're to be clear about it, purposeful, careful, to spur, to poke, to provoke each other toward love and good deeds. Now the word love there is the word agape. You're familiar with this word and it's broad in its meanings and its uses. But very simply, agape love is a self-sacrificial love. But don't miss this. Don't miss this. It's very important. If you miss this, you miss agape. Agape is a self-sacrificial love that is not based on feelings Rather, it's based on a decision. It's not based on feelings. It's based on decision. It's a self-sacrificial, giving love based on a decision. I am choosing to love this person. It is irregardless of whether or not they're lovable. That has nothing to do with it. It doesn't matter how you feel about them or don't feel about them. Agape love is a decision. It's the way that God loves us. God has committed himself to love us. And then we are to model that love and we're to push each other, provoke each other, spur each other on toward this kind of love. That we would choose to love other people, Christians and non-Christians alike, in a self-sacrificial manner, making the decision because he first loved us. Doesn't matter how you feel or what they're like. Because he first loved us, we choose to love one another. The neat thing about agape love is that feelings may follow. You may discover in choosing to love someone that way that a feeling follows that bolsters that love. But it doesn't matter. The decision is to give and to love self-sacrificially. It's a kind of love that is not self-protective. It's not based on self-preservation. Almost everything you do is based on self-preservation. Almost everything. The vast majority of your decisions are based on self-preservation. But you see, as Christians, there comes a reversal. And we're to be about the giving of self for the better of others. We're to consider others as being more important than ourselves. We're to push each other and think about how we might do it and push each other toward love and good deeds. Make no mistake about it, Christians are to be doing good deeds. Now, we're not saved by good deeds. Amen? 
We're saved by grace through faith alone. Sola fide. We are not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith alone. And though we are not saved by good deeds, we are saved for good deeds. Don't miss this. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says, You are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. The fact that that verse says you should walk in them means that some Christians are not walking in them. And what are Christians to do? They're to get together and spur each other, kick each other in the butt to say, hey man, are you loving like Christ loves you? Are you forgiving like he's forgiven us? Are you serving others in the service of him? Are you doing God's call on your life? You're God's masterpiece, his poema, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And nobody's to be left behind. Some people want to be left behind. They want to fall through the cracks. And as a church, we're supposed to say, no, 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 no cracks. No slipping out the back door. No shirking your Christian responsibility of koinonia, fellowship, and love and good deeds. Every one of us has a responsibility to walk in these things. That's why we are demanding of you that if this church is your home, you must be in a home group or you are shirking your responsibility as a member of this community unless you have some outstanding circumstances that simply forbid it. Then it says in verse 25, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. All the more as you see the day drawing near, the day of the coming of the Lord, encouraging. It can be translated exhorting. It means to strongly urge to action. Our Christianity is to be active. We're to have an active faith. Our belief in Jesus Christ should have a visible outflow into the world around us. And we're to encourage one another to do it. And we do it in the context of assembling together. Getting together in the large group and in the small group to do these things with one another. Alan Stibbs says in his book, God's Church, any idea of enjoying salvation or being a Christian in isolation is foreign to the New Testament writings. It's, it's an anomaly, it's an oxymoron, an isolated Christian. A man once told John Wesley, the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. Nothing of solitary religion. The Lone Ranger Christian is an anti-biblical Christian. We are called to community, large and small. So we have the biblical basis for home groups, which is the nature of God, the Trinity, and the model of the church, and we have the practical need for the home groups dealing with the size and handling the tendency to hide. And then lastly, we have the effective ministry of home groups. The effective ministry of home groups. Now, one of the strategies that the Lord has showed us with home groups is that we're to try to get the most out of what happens on Sunday. When we first started our home groups, it's something we, we did from the very beginning. We do them in seasons. We take a little time off and do other things, so on and so forth. But from the very beginning, we knew that we were to have home groups. We saw that as a biblical model. We saw that there would be a need. And we tried various things. 
And through prayer and seeking the Lord, what we've landed on is in our weekly small meetings, among other things, we're going to try to make the most of Sunday, meaning the sermon that was delivered on Sunday. Now, experience tells us that my one-hour sermons are too much for any human to retain. We know this, we believe this, we understand this. My one-hour sermon is too much information for anybody to retain. But more important than retention is action. What we want to make sure we're doing as a responsible Christian community is acting upon the truths that were given to us from the Word of God by the anointing of the Holy Spirit on Sunday morning. We need to make sure that we're doing something about it. We need to be doers of the word and not merely hearers of the word. But by the very nature of our laziness, we need to provoke one another to do that. We need to spur each other on. We need to get in each other's face and kick each other in the butt and say, hey, are you loving and doing as Christians ought to love and do? Are you responding to the word of God? It's a grievous sin to not respond to the word of God. James says it were to be hear, not merely hearers, excuse me, of the word, but doers of it. James said that someone who hears the word and doesn't do anything about it deludes themselves. Billy Graham said that the biggest sin in America is listening to sermons. Some of you are guilty of that. You come in week after week and you hear but you never do anything about it. You got a real sin issue in your life. A real sin issue. You're a hearer, not a doer. You're deluding yourself. In fact, James says in chapter one that you're like a person who looks himself in the mirror and then walks away and forgets what he looks like. What would you call that person? Stupid. (laughs) That's what he's saying. That person is stupid. Someone that looks intently into the perfect law, the word of God, and doesn't let it be a mirror into their life and do something about it is stupid. And some of the church is guilty of that. We must be doers of the word. We've got to be applying the word of God. And so our home groups are designed with application in mind. That's the goal that we'll get together, we'll discuss the sermon from that week. There'll have been sometimes some homework assigned. You'll hold each other accountable to do that homework and to to come and to discuss, here's what I learned, here's what I'm getting from that, here's how that's affecting my life, and then you'll pray. Because the difference between merely knowing and doing is prayer. Getting it from the head to the heart, what makes a difference is prayer. And so you'll be praying in your home groups and then you'll be holding each other accountable to live transformed lives by the power of the Holy Spirit and the applied word. And then you're going to start heeding 2 Timothy 2.15. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, be diligent. Notice that word, diligent. NIV says work hard. NASB, be diligent. Be diligent, work hard to present yourself. Approve to God. Who are you going to stand before? God. Be diligent to present yourself, approve to God as a workman. Workman, not lazy, not hands off, hands on. As a workman who need not be ashamed, but handles accurately the word of truth. 
If you're a Christian and it's not your habit of handling the word of God, 2 Timothy 2.15 says you ought to be ashamed of yourself because we stand before God responsible for the revelation he's given us. And when it comes to the word of God, we are to be workmen. And in your home group, you'll be working with the word of God. When you come on Sundays, I have been the workman. I was studying. You weren't studying. Throughout the week, you'll be studying. You'll be getting your hands and your heart in the word of God with an eye on the glory of Jesus Christ and a heart for transformation. Proverbs 28, 19 comes to mind and says, he who tills his land will have plenty of food. If you have land and you want it to be productive, what do you do? You can't just own it. You got to work it. He who tills his land will have plenty of food. It's the same thing with your Bible. You can't just own it. You got to work it. You need to get your hands and your heart into it and then you will receive nourishment from it. And so what happens in home groups is that we'll be getting into the word of God on a deeper level with application in mind that we might save ourselves from the sin of merely being hearers and might actually be doers of what God is speaking to us. What we find with this model of discussing and applying the sermon that was given on Sunday throughout the week is a historical parallel. Now God gave us this model as we prayed. And then we found out, lo and behold, that other people were doing this. Praise the Lord, we haven't invented anything, nothing new under the sun in reality. Nothing special here, just trying to obey Jesus. But we found a neat historical parallel. There's a guy named Philip Jacob Spinner. Rather, there was. He is in heaven. He lived from 1635 to 1705. Spinner was a German Lutheran. And he was active in ministry about a hundred years after the initial Reformation took place under Martin Luther. So the Reformation takes place based in Germany. There's this reform in the church. The Protestant church comes forward. There's this new zeal. There's a new discovery of the word of God and moving from cold, dead religion into a real meaningful love relationship with Jesus Christ, being free from works, knowing that we're saved by faith through grace alone. Grace through faith, excuse me. And there's this revival that happens in the church through the Reformation. But about a hundred years later, some of that fervor, some of that fire was beginning to die out. And this is when Spinner existed in Germany. And he was a member, a member excuse me, of the Lutheran church. And he saw that the church was becoming formal and insincere. Formal and insincere. The very thing that some of the reformers rallied against a hundred years earlier. As I said, some of the fervor of the initial reformation was gone. And Spinner comes along and he says, something has to change in our Christian experience right now. He came along and he started talking about heart religion as opposed to head religion. You see, things in Germany in the Lutheran church had gotten overly cerebral. They knew doctrine, they argued doctrine, they fought for doctrine, but they left it right here in the head. And Spinner came along and said, there's a disconnect. Christianity is to be not only an issue of the head, but to be an issue of the heart. And he founded a movement that was called pietism, from the word piety, pietism. And pietism emphasized these things. Number one, 
heartfelt religious devotion. That is sincerity. A real meaningful relationship with Jesus Christ, not just going to church. He said, we got to do that. We got to have a meaningful, real love affair with Jesus, not this churchianity thing. The second thing that pietism emphasized was ethical purity or holiness. He said, wait a minute. What we believe ought to have an effect on how we live. And if we believe in a holy God and we believe that we've been reconciled to him by grace through faith alone, that ought to change the way that we live. We ought to look more like Jesus and less like the sinful world. The third thing that pietism emphasized was charitable activity, good deeds. That there's got to be that outflow, not only holiness in our lives, transformed lives, but an outflow into the world around us. And finally, he said that we ought to emphasize pastoral theology. That is not just cerebral theology, but we ought to study our Bibles and preach from the Bible for transformation. That people would be doers of the word and not merely hearers. Now, pietism profoundly affected guys like John Wesley and his brother and the Moravians and other great and fruitful Christian movements. I'm not promoting pietism. It had its problems. I'm merely pointing out that there's a historical and fruitful precedent for the way that we are thinking as a local church right now. As historians look back on pietism, started by Spenner, and the movement and and what came out of it, there's four things that they see as general traits. Number one, it's experiential character. That is to say, pietists were people of the heart for whom Christian living was a fundamental concern. They weren't satisfied to just know truth. They wanted to live truth. Don't understand or don't misunderstand experiential character. Simply saying they wanted to experience God. They believed him to be real, real and living and available. They wanted to live transformed lives. The second trait was its biblical focus. Here's where we balance their desire for experience is everything was biblical and had to be biblical. Pietists were, to paraphrase John Wesley, people of one book. For them, everything started and ended with the Bible. They took their standards and their goals and their values from the pages of Scripture. The third thing that we see is pietists had a perfectionistic bent. That is to say, they were serious about holy living and they expended every effort to follow God's law, spread the gospel, and provide aid for the needy. They really believed in being like Jesus. The buzzword in the church today is incarnational ministry. They didn't want to just know about Jesus. They didn't just want to have right theology. They did want to have right theology. They wanted to live theology. And then finally, the pietists had a reforming interest. They were opposed to what they regarded as coldness and sterility in established churches and their forms and practices. They wanted real, vibrant Christianity. These people in the 1600s, the 17th century, were just like you and I. They wanted more. They wanted to experience God, but they wanted to keep it biblical. Huh? They wanted to not just know theology, they wanted to live theology. 
and they didn't want to do churchianity, they didn't want to do religion, they really wanted to live it. They wanted vibrancy and fire. And so in 1669, Spender preached a sermon where he spoke about these things. And what came out of that was that small groups begin to meet throughout the week to pray, to discuss the previous week's sermon and apply the passages from scripture and devotional writings to their lives. This was revolutionary at the time. He said, listen, people, we're not living it. So I'm going to preach doctrinally, but you guys get together and chew on it, talk about it, and pray it in. Let the word become flesh. And this became a model for the church that transformed entire movements in the church for hundreds of years to come. This is revolutionary. They were thinking just like we're thinking. Let's teach doctrinally, but let's work on living it. God had shown them the same thing about community and encouraging one another and authentic Christianity as he's showing us. So what we're doing is nothing new, but it's biblical and it's historical and it's right. He wrote a little thing called Pia Desideria. In other words, translated the piety we desire. And he outlined six points of how he wanted the church to return to vibrancy. Three of them are important for us. Number one, He said that we need to return to a more extensive use of the word of God among us. A more extensive use that people throughout the week need to be in the word of God, using the word of God, studying the word of God, living the word of God, chewing the word of God. Number two, he wanted a renewal of the priesthood of all believers. The priesthood of all believers. Martin Luther was big on this. It faded over a hundred years. Peter taught it in 1 Peter that every single Christian has a ministry. The Baptists say it this way, God bless them. Every member is a minister. Peter said it this way, you are a holy and royal priesthood that you have been given a ministry from God that you are to fulfill to the glory of Jesus Christ. Live it. Stop depending on paid clergy. Start being a responsible Christian and live out your ministry and the calling that God has on your life. And the last thing that he called for was return to authentic Christian living as opposed to mere cerebral apprehension. And the results were fantastic. Christianity in that part of the world and it spread to America was transformed. In certain ways, it was rescued. And so our home groups are about getting the most out of your Bible and then also getting the most out of each other. Remember, the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. We're to be in fellowship, partaking, sharing, participating. We're to be in community, fellowship with others who share common attitudes, interests, and goals. This community is to be intense and close relationship that's beyond any other community. What did Jesus say? You're going to know people who are mine by the way they love one another. By the way they love one another. People should be jealous of the way that Christians love one another. We're called to this kind of intimate communion. And so here's what we do in our home groups. Now, understand that when you go to home groups, 
you can look to receive these things, but you also got to look to give these things. Don't just be a taker. Major disconnect in modern Christianity. Can you give me five more minutes? Let me get nasty. Major (laughs) disconnect in modern Christianity is consumerism. Many of you come to church looking to get, and you want to have your needs met. Many of you go to home groups for the same thing. I'm needy, I got problems, I got issues, I got drama, fix me. Okay, first of all, only Jesus can fix you. Only Jesus can fix you. What others are to do is encourage you to follow hard after him. But don't go to home groups with that attitude. Go looking to give. Go looking to give. Did not Paul quote our Lord as saying, it's better to give than to receive? And so if your attitude is me, 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 and I need, and woe is me, and poor me, and why don't you me, and no one does for me, and what about me? You need to repent. You need to get over it, but don't you know what they did to me? Hey, I know what they did to Jesus. Get over it. Get over it. You need to go with a heart to glorify Jesus Christ and to love others. You need to go looking for and expecting to give concern. Concern. We're going to be concerned about each other. Philippians chapter 2 says, let us consider one one another as more important than ourselves. How's everything in your life? Are you okay? Call them up. You weren't there Tuesday night. Is everything all right? I'm not trying to bust your chops. I just want to make sure everything is cool. Let me encourage you. Let me provoke you. Let me kick you in the butt. What's going on in your life? Concern is to be given and received. Secondly, accountability. Accountability. Hebrews 3, 12 through 14 says, Take care, brethren, lest there should be among you anyone with an evil and unbelieving heart and falling away from the living God. Encourage one another as you see the day approaching. So what home groups is all about is making yourself accountable and holding others accountable. Being transparent and honest. Not airing all your dirty laundry, but being transparent and honest. Here's what's going on in my life. Here's what's awesome. Here's what's hard. What's happening in your life? Let's pray about it. What does the word of God have to say about it? And we see him the next week. Has there been victory in that area? Are you growing in that area? Did you forgive that person? Did you get free from that? Have you been clean from that this week? No, not this week. Let's pray again. What does the word of God have to say? Let me hold you accountable. I'll call you Wednesday and see how it's going. Accountability. Next thing, relationships. We need them. We're designed by God to have them. You're just going to fall in love with people and people are going to fall in love with you. You've got to be purposeful about it. Remember, it's agape love. It's a decision to love, not a feeling. You might walk in that room and go, ooh, ooh, how to get in this home group? This is not where I belong. I don't feel like I don't like these people. Make a decision to love, especially those who are different than you. Christianity is wonderful because there's unity in diversity. And the last thing you'll be doing is getting equipped. And you'll be equipping others. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, The word of God is profitable for teaching, for correction, for rebuke, and for training in righteousness. Verse 17, That the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. You're going to get better equipped in the word of God than if you just came on Sundays. That forms an acronym 
care. <laughs> what you're to do in home groups is care for one another. Concern, accountability, relationships, and equipping. You've got to count the cost. You've got to decide that it's biblical, that it's needed, that it's historical, that it's effective, and that it's fruitful. You've got to count the cost and you've got to persevere in it. Ephesians 4, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The early church was continually devoting themselves to these things. If we're going to be a church together, we've got to be devoted because home groups are biblical, practical, and effective. Amen? Amen. Lord, thank you for this exhortation this morning. Thank you that you've left us with at least that much of a model for the church. And Lord, we just ask that you'd help us in our hearts. We just confess that we are generally selfish people. But Jesus, you died to make us what we are not. And you live. And we might continually come to you and be transformed. And so do a work in our hearts, Lord. I know that not everybody can be in a home group. There's certain seasons and so on and so forth. Lord, just make it clear for those who should. Those that are called in this season to be in that sort of koinonia fellowship Make it clear and make a way, Lord. We don't want to lag behind in diligence as a body. We want to be responsible as a community of believers modeled after the Trinitarian shape of who you are. Help us in that, Lord. Give us right hearts, right minds, that we would live rightly as a church. Brothers and sisters, let the Lord deal with your heart this morning on any issues. You know, the biggest hindrance to koinonia is sin. Just like fellowship is social, sin is social. My sin affects you, your sin affects me because we're a body knit together. So if there's sin in your life this morning, repent of it. Come and get right before Jesus. If you need help this morning, you're struggling, the prayer team is here. Communion is here to celebrate together what Jesus has done. Let's press into him.